J.T. Crowley is Talking Books. On this show, you'll hear from emerging talent and seasoned veterans from around the world. They'll give you their take on the writing process and how to create the secret sauce of page-turning deliciousness. Let's get into that magical mixture of the art and science of creativity. Here's J.T. Crowley, author of The Smart Kids and your podcast host. Hello. I'm J.T. Crowley, and I'm extremely pleased to have on the show today Don Best, the author of the River Wild series. The series is a duology with the first book, The Gravedigger's Dream, promptly followed by the third, Promise, the second book. To get the full effect of this incredible story, you do need to read both books, everybody, in sequence. For reading them without sequence, you're not going to enjoy them. Don Best has published hundreds of newspaper and magazine stories, including feature articles in Popular Scenes, Homeowner, This Old House. And he's also, you know, been writing for a long time, everybody. And when we look at his, um, in his publishings, you know, particularly, you know, around the, the TV show, The Old House, that's quite phenomenal. But also, he did publish in 2009, Moonlight on the Amazon, a compendium of true stories, essays based on his time he spent in the Brazilian Amazon. From old New England to the Amazonian rainforest, Don Best has worked as an award-winning journalist, expat novelist, and Christian missionary. He met his wife, Elizabeth, simply known as Betty, in Rio de Janeiro, while they worked as a journalistic photographic team. They ended up marrying, traveling the world, devoting their lives to each other and to their Christian missionary work. They have two grown-up sons, Paul and Jonathan, who have their own families, and they presently live near Charleston in South Carolina in the United States of America. Everything that's... Don has done, has not been done without the backing and the full support of his wife, Betty. Betty has been very instrumental in the River Wild series. So that's why, everybody, they're both on the podcast today. Despite only Don's name appearing on the books as the author, let me tell you, Betty has had a huge influence on these books, everybody. As they say, behind every successful man is a successful woman, and vice versa. So let's invite them on the show to tell us how and why this intriguing River Wild series came about. Don, Betty, come and join me on the show. Hey, John. Good, good to join you. How are you? Doing good? Doing great. Betty? Hey, John. It's good to be here. Thank you for having us. Oh, you're very welcome. Um. I want to get to the hub of these uh, this series, and I want to go to the first book. So, Don, Betty, I think it's only right that we start off by talking about the first book, The Grave Digger's Dream. Where did the idea and concept come from? Don, does this book stem from your father's ideology that as a child you should venture into the wild? <laughs> Well, let's give, yeah, let's give credit where credit's due. My father believed in, uh, 
get in uh, my brother and my sister and I out into the world and, and uh, experience a real adventure. And uh, he wildly succeeded with me. I traveled a lot and uh, ended up uh, spending about 15 years altogether in Latin America, John, uh, Puerto Rico and uh, Paraguay and a lot of years in Brazil, 10 years in Brazil. So, yeah, the inspiration did come from those direct experiences in Latin America. We've actually had a long, a long love affair with Latin America. We met in Rio, Rio de Janeiro, uh, working as a journalism team. That was back in the 70s. That was Brazil part one. And we had a Brazil part one and a Brazil part two. Right. Opposite <laughs> ends of Brazil. We were right. very different, too. Very, very, <laughs> so. very different experiences, John. The first one was very cosmopolitan living in Rio, and the second one was very um, rural, living in the Brazilian Amazon in the rainforest. We lived there for 10 years. And was so that Manaus? Yeah, ma yeah. Not, no, not Manaus, but we were about six. We were in Santarém, which is where the Tapajós River meets the Amazon River, ah. right at that place, Tapajós being bigger than the Mississippi, but dwarfed by the Amazon. Um, and Santarém was a city of 200,000, but it was the largest city within 600 miles. Manaus being on the west and Belém being on the east at the coast. Uh, so we, but we traveled uh, with teams. We were at a mission. We traveled with teams to probably about uh, 70, 80, 100, I don't know, different river villages, repeating some of them. So we get to know the people there pretty well. It was yeah. uh, pretty exciting. Um, the book, Don, has 24 chapters, and I want to go to chapters one and two so that listeners get a flavor of the opening scenes in this book. You introduce, um, you know, two of the main characters, here, Mario and Mick. I like the character Mick, the Irish missionary. Yes. But I'll tell you why later on, I believe. And Samari, of course, is this sergeant in the military police who struggles with alcohol addiction and, as I said, the Irish missionary. You start off with a bank robbery, which Samario finds himself embroiled in. His grandmother's and the story of the moon, I thought was very interesting, that little clip's there. His, he's, figuratively speaking, being demoted by his boss, Colonel Mateus Iquisera. But here you are, you're sowing the seeds of a revolutionary here. What's happening in this book? You know, a revolutionary uprising to overthrow the present dictator, president. Why did you choose to open the story to this duology, you know, two novel books with these characters and scenes? And why do you feel this opening chapter, and which is powerful in its own right, is engaging to readers? Why? This storyline. Well, is I I really want to take the readers on a trip, uh, an adventure where they uh, very few people will ever go, and I want to set that scene. Um, so twice in my life, John, I've lived under dictators, and um, in the seventies, we mentioned we, uh, when we were there when we met, we were living under a dictator um, Ernesto Geisel, and he's bru he was brutal. And um, so I wanted to set that scene, first of all, that this is a very uh, rural place on the edge of the world, uh, out in the rainforest. The, the name of the village is um, Jacare, 
and which means alligator actually in uh, Guarani. And I want to set that scene of just how, what a rough place this is and um, that they're living under the thumb of a dictator and they're living in a village. Um, I uh, want to set it the way we lived it, or the way we saw it, which is a village that has no electricity. It has no indoor plumbing. It has no roads. Everything is related to the river. And to bring those characters together in that setting and give it that flavor. Um, um, I really do want to, <laughs> I set out to take the readers to, like I said, a place that can, very few people ever go, a time and a place. And um, um, I want to make that clear, you know, the setting, really. Also, um, pretty immediately in the book, uh, to bring in the glory, actually, the glory is the right word, the rainforest. What an extraordinary place. So those three things, I think the overarching political scene, which is dictatorship, local corruption, and then the rural setting of the village, and then this set in this incredible place called uh, the Amazon Rainforest. Yeah, so I understand it. And, you know, when I look at the book, you know, I can see the, the poverty that's within that village. It's very basic. Right. One of the conditions that Zay, his full name is Zamario, but that's shortened to Zay in the book, which is the way Brazilians do. Brazilians shorten your yeah. names from Zamario Lacata down to just Zay. He is extremely poor and he is the, um, after he's uh, booted out of the military, is the village gravedigger. And um, there's not much room to dream there. <laughs> um, there's not much hope. Uh, at one point in the early goings of the book, um, uh, your character there, uh, Mick says, uh, your problem is not poverty and your, your poverty, problem is not disease. And it's not even actually uh, the dictator. Your problem is hopelessness. It is. And I get that very strongly in the book. Yeah, right. Um, Don, we can't go, you know, but we can't go into every chapter of the book because that's not the whole purpose of this podcast. The part, the idea of the podcast is to give people a flavor of these two books. Right. So, um, I would like to go to chapter 13 because I like this chapter. You know, so this is chapter 13 in the first book. Right. Uh, no, and for a couple of reasons. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I, and, more significantly, we start to see more of a Samario known as Z, you know, motive, dreams. And we also get to see more of Alzira. Now, Alzira is the village witch. She's powerful, isn't she? She's a powerful sorcerer. And she's got some not-so-nice characteristics attached to her, but she has her use. So we start to see the demise of um, Evando Bonham. Now, Evando Bonham, everybody, is the um, educational minister who they target because of his corruption. He spent the money on himself as opposed to the schools, and this is what the story is about. C is very angry here. Where did you get this story from? Where did you come up with these characters? Why the sorcerer? Why Z? Why the education minister. Um, so again, you know, um, my to be honest is, is a writer's to me to be honest is a writer's foremost responsibility and to bring this world authentically to the reader to take them really take them there. So this idea, uh, this book is not fantasy. This idea of witchcraft is very very deeply embedded in the Amazon and all of Brazil actually. Uh, they have two strains of. Um, um, 
black magic or witchery, if you will, macumba and cantumble. These are very real presence. This is a very real presence in village life. So Azira is not a figment of my imagination at all. And um, so she's a very real character. And they do, they do believe in uh, selling baths and potions and, and, and casting spells. So that's not made up stuff. And um, neither is the corruption. Uh, you mentioned um, um, the corrupt, the corruption uh, at, the, at the ministerial level, where they in Brazil they say he ate the money, comeu la comida, you know, right? Comeu he ate the money, and this also is very, very authentic and realistic. I want the readers to come away from this understanding. Uh, Corruption is rife in Brazil. It's very, very common for a bureaucrat or a minister to eat eat the money for the project. Um, and so those two factors are very real. And um, you know, it crushes Zay's hope for a school because the money is gone. Because Zay um, and Chico actually went to see the minister and he threw he them did. down the stairs, didn't he? Yeah. he Chico down the stairs. Yes, he did. He tried. So... Uh, in his in his dream, in his struggle to uh, realize this dream, which is for a better life for his village, um, he tries what you might call the straight route, the, the legitimate course. Let's go, let's go all the way to Belém, which is 600 miles by river, with Chico, his friend. Right? It's slow. It's a <laughs> slow, hard trip uh, yeah. down that river. I will tell you because we've been there. Again, I just want to let let our readers know I, I, that um, we've been on that river, and I've been all the way from Naus to Bidang. It's like twelve hundred miles on a slow boat. Anyway, he takes John. He does take the. He says, "I'm going to give this legitimate try," and um, they, you know, they treat him like dirt, and they throw Chico out down the stairs, and uh, that plants the seed for bitterness because a hope deferred. Um, I hope deferred turns bitter in a man's heart or a woman's heart, right, Betsy? Yeah, yeah. I think the I think the clincher was because they really loved Chico, and the clincher that just threw him overboard was when Chico was thrown down the stairs. Yeah. That was just sealed his yeah. his bitterness. Hurt me, if you will, but don't hurt my friend, you know, and yeah. probably yeah. the best friend in the village. And uh... I, I chose the chapter 13 because this is the turning point in the two books because this is when the revenge starts. This is right. these revenge and how he, you know, comes about delivering this um, revenge um, to get his dream of, you know, he's the simple grave digger of the village, but he has a dream. He wants to see the school. He wants to see the village prosper. Um, but this chapter was a turning point for me. So I thought I'm going to bring it in. But I want to go to, as we said, Don, in our pre-chats, we'll go to chapter 24 here because the whole aspect of this podcast is to give a flavor of the books. Um, so let's go to chapter 24. Now, chapter 24 is the end chapter in this book, but it's a significant chapter, everybody. Um because, you know, the dream is here, it's starting. It's a stunning chapter. Zamario is in Bellum with uh, Letero. He's a character. And I'm not going to go into his character because he really is a character, everybody. And uh, to carry out the curse, because the curse was set by Alzira, the witch. I want you, Don, to tell us how you 
put this chapter 24 together now. And did you enjoy writing it? Did you enjoy writing this book? <laughs> That's a really beautiful question, John. So um, why I, I love this. writing, first of all. <laughs> so is it always quite pleasant? Sometimes it's more like a struggle. Uh, but underneath, I love writing. and I love the language. Um, this challenge, uh, this chapter is challenging. Um, it does deal with something that's supernatural, which is um, so when a man's dream is um, deferred or, or uh, uh, turned to ashes, he, he becomes bitter. And um, like I say, this is a very real thing in Brazil. If you are uh, angry or you are a, uh, your lover and you've been spurned or um, you will turn, you will turn to uh, many people. Oh, yeah. So we'll turn to um, uh, witchcraft um, to have, have, and, try, and have a curse um, placed on them. Yeah. For that, and because they want somebody to fall in love with them, there's all kinds of little potions for every potions, specific thing in your life. Potions and baths and sacrifices. I want again. I want again tell those who are going to buy the book and the two books i hope and uh, read them in sequence like you said this is a very real thing john um and the traffic circles and even in the big cities out in the villages is very common to go to the local um curandera they sometimes call them or herbalist um but healer. healer they will say use different names but they're just euphemisms for the witch they will go to her and uh, they will or do huh? or him or him, could or be him. him. yeah or him could be uh um, and pay uh, in one way or another, pay for a curse. And this in one way or another involves money and also usually some sort of sacrifice. I don't want to spoil this chapter for the reader, but uh, um, let me just say that in Rio, where we live for two years, and on Sao Paulo, the other big cities, you will come to a traffic circle. And out in the middle of the traffic circle, there will be an, uh, a sacrificial altar placed. I mean, right in the middle of a little park, this traffic circle, and it will have candles, and it'll have a plate, and maybe other things, a cigar, maybe a shot of whiskey. Yeah, yeah or a wine glass, a very nice wine. These are This is set up often by a person who has no money, but right. they will put out beautiful uh, dinnerware and beautiful uh, wine and so forth as a sacrifice. And the police will not touch it, John. No one will touch it. I mean, you would think, well, in the United States or maybe in Great Britain or Europe, some, well, the police would remove it. And that is left there. It is, no one will touch that. It is a sacrificial altar. And that, it's bad luck and, to move it. And so, again, um, I wrote this right out of um, the reality that is Brazil, um, was the reality in Brazil in the 1970s. And also still the reality today, John. Uh, so yeah, I'm take. I want to take the reader to a place like I was saying, where they've a time and place where they've never been, and um, show them some really uh, interesting things. Because yeah. I thought it was odd, you know, that in this chapter, you know, there they are on the side of the road, you know, and they're doing this offering, you know, for to bring this curse about. And of course, it's the wind chimes, and I'm not going any further there, guys. If you want to know what the wind chimes are about, read the books. But for me, you know, I thought towards the end of this book, you know, you left a lot of uh, loose ends floating about. And no doubt that was quite intentional, wasn't it, Don? So that people then go on to the second book, The Third Promise, which we're about to go on to. I'm right, aren't I? You are right. 
Well, I think I think we need to we need to say that the book was originally one book, and the publisher said it's just too big. It Have was, to divide it. It was into. over five hundred pages. So, my publisher uh, Rowena Kukwo with Brimstone Fiction, um, and more power to her. She is a beautiful lady and uh, um, a real inspiration. Um, said we need to for uh, portability's sake and for readability and. We need to split this into two volumes. So we have the Rivers Wild series one and two. And uh, it, so they are contig- you know, continuous. Or continuous. Oh, they are. They are. Yeah. Right. Now, the, she did um, wisely uh, suggest that Don write a new introductory chapter to the third promise, to the second part of it, to catch people up. So you can read the third promise by itself, but you'll miss a lot, a lot of yeah. the heart of what we're trying to get across. Let me tell you, everybody, you need to read both books. You're not really going to get the whole story without reading the two books in sequel. I've done it. Believe you me. So let's go to the second book, The Third Promise. For me, this book is more intense as it gets further into the nitty gritty of the story. We get to learn more about the complexities of the characters, Zimario, Azira, and Mick. Now, Mick really does come into this um, second book here, The Irish Missionary. And, of course, Raphael, his adopted son. So let's have a look at, let's go to chapters two and four here. Here we have a chess game between Padre Ezebra, and if I've got that wrong, I do apologise. He's the Catholic priest, and Mick O'Hannon, the Irish missionary. We get to see more about Z's depression as, as life for him has fallen apart as he spirals further into Alzira's spider's web of trickery. And now that's now she's got a grip on him with, for the money that he owes her money for doing these curses. As she says, they pay these people. And some of them are not very rich people. So for me, this book is very intense. The scenes are starting to build up. And I love the character Chico. Did you enjoy writing this second book, this third promise? And starting off the storylines with what you say in chapters two and four. You tell us what's in chapter two and four. I know, but I want you to tell me. (laughs) Um, So two years, uh, you might say, uh, like a defeated soldier going back home uh, from... uh, Actually, to uh, lay down a sacrifice, uh, a blood sacrifice um, to the devil this, uh, is um, um, is fundamentally depressing and fundamentally evil. Uh, and so he has taken himself. Um, you know, one of the overall themes we, we use to describe this series is what happens when a noble dream um, turns into a deadly obsession. So he's starting to really mess with death now because his dreams turn bitter. And so we see him coming back to his village, uh, really a defeated man. And, um, and then the chess game you described, uh, I really had fun with that because uh, there I, I play chess to start with. I thought so. And, uh, yeah. So I'll go back really quickly here and just <laughs> tell you what the, I lived two years in Paraguay, uh, when I was in the Peace Corps and I indeed played chess there in the village with a blue eyed. Uh, chubby priest of German descent and one of the more intellectual characters and in, that was in Casa Pa in Paraguay um, another 
village with no electricity or plumbing and so forth. But um, so I live poor there. So that character, um, more than any other, I think it only the only is the only character in the book that is closely cast. I would say after someone I knew, and the chess game itself is metaphorical. It's um, so one of the other things that's realistically, authentically going on in Brazil is a clash between Catholicism and Protestant, uh, the Protestant churches, especially evangelical Protestant churches. That is, there's no way to prettify that. That is a uh, clash between those two religions. So that chess game is um, both very real. Uh, it's very real again. I'm, I think, again, as I said, John, my number one responsibility as a writer is to, to be honest, as honest as I can. So that's the reason for that um, that scene. I like that scene very much, actually. I'm not going to spoil it by, tell you who, by telling you who wins the chess game or where that, that friction between uh, the village priest and an Irish missionary, how that plays out. And I'm not going to tell you who wins the chess game either, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Can we go to chapter 13, Don, please? Now, I love this chapter. There's something about chapter 13 in your books. Um, it's about Alzira's stranglehold over Z uh, with Raphael under her control. It's very interesting. You know, she's got his adopted son, his son there working for her. He, she's got a stranglehold over um, Z. Now, a child to be used as employment as a, you know, to, for payment of a debt. This is a very interesting um, aspect and a very interesting uh, storyline. So I take it you saw a fair bit of that on your explorations, you know, your missionary work. Uh, so I think you based this on what you saw. Am I right? Um, well, I think, honestly, almost everything in that book is based on things I directly saw or experienced, or we experienced together, it's taken right out of life, uh, right out of the life of the rainforest and uh, right out of the life of uh, the Brazilians who live there. So um, what is, the, I, you know, I, I I came up with the word indentured. I'm not sure I ever, maybe I did use it in the book once. So there is, there's slavery, and then there is indentured, people who are indentured because of debt and um he finds himself, as you say, sinking into this. Uh, he's he's in deep debt to her and uh, under her spiritual um, sway. And then she's not satisfied with that. She uh, what she's really after is his son Raphael, who is a gifted, really gifted young guy. And uh, she's not so interested in the old man. She does. She's she can. He's useful maybe in some ways, but she wants to get her hooks or claws into his son. So here we see, again, the dream deferred or the dream, dream turned bitter, leading to real um, real evil, real trouble, real I suffering. mean, when I look at your book, there's some parts of this book, you know, The Third Promise, are quite violent. Um, you know, when I go to Chapter 15, you know, you've got um, the, the brawl, the attack, on Mick, the Irish missionary. Right. The um, So again, that is, we know people who were stoned in the Amazon. It's a very, uh, so I want, again, uh, I'm a Christian. Uh, there are some Christian themes in the book, but this is not an overtly Christian book. It is, um, 
more than anything meant to be an honest depiction or portrayal of life in the Amazon. And it is a very dangerous, it's a very beautiful and dangerous place. And um, it's sometimes very violent. We know of people who have um, been stoned, actually. Uh, it's kind of a, a very crude medieval, actually pre-medieval way to express your anger towards someone, to throw rocks at them. But um, again, I, I want my I want my readers to know that uh, I'm not making this up. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think the thing to remember is that we're all like that. Um, these are people that are just like us that are enclosed in an isolated river village. Uh, so that and and it's filled with gossip. So uh, the 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 tempers can run deep if they start to run. Uh, it's like a match hitting dry leaves. Um, not to s indicate that that the people are always, you know, they're just violent people. Um, but all of us will have that tendency uh, if we're if we're closed in close with an issue that uh, has been blown out of proportion. Especially you see, uh, of course, he's has he a, lies thrown in. some lies yeah. and gossip swirling in, in the sea of lies and gossip. And uh, alcohol, of course, is a kind, you know, a contributing spirit. They call alcohol spirits, don't they? And so, and he sees now his son, and he sees now his son compromised or indentured. And so, um, Brazilians, I will say this, but we love Brazilians. We've had a long, long love affair with Brazil and Brazilians. They are, by temperament, actually very mellow people. Absolutely. Let's give them, they're also very generous. Let's say some really beautiful things about the Brazilians. They're very generous people and laughing people and very musical people. Welcoming. Welcoming people. Yeah. But th this, this book has universal themes and that um, we all want to see our sons and daughters be healthy and grow up and realize their potential and that is fundamentally his dream for his son Raphael and when you see that crater or go to ashes um, it brings out even in a Brazilian um, some real anger and, and mm -hmm. they will they will like any other human being anyway they will become violent right and, and anger is often focused on the newest comer the late, the newcomer. And uh, right. that's the source of all our, or this other person is the source of all our problems. Isn't that uh, very uh, human, John? Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, the newcomer is Mick, isn't it? He is. Right. He happens to be. Um, he's a fascinating so, character, isn't he? Yeah. Because when I look at the books, everybody, um, the historical background of Mick O'Hannon is fascinating. His journey from being involved in the paramilitary organizations in Northern Ireland and his transgression to be a missionary in Brazil. It's a phenomenal storyline. Why did you put him in? Why did you give well, him that character, those characteristics? Because I love the character Mick. Yeah, I like him too. And, um, I like him very much. Uh, actually, I'm, I have some Irish heritage myself. And we got the chance to visit Ireland. We'd love to go back. We went to Belfast. Uh, John and we we met a wonderful Irishman there who said I'm going to give you the warts and all tour. And yeah, by good the time, <laughs> yeah, warts and all uh, about Northern Ireland. And I, by the time I explained to him, I didn't never quite understood the troubles in Northern Ireland. 
And he said, well, by the time we're through here and walk around Belfast, you'll understand the troubles, at least more so. So I think it's very interesting. The MIG went from, okay, let's just look at Northern Ireland for a minute, rock throwing or maybe Molotov cocktails um, and the violence in Northern Ireland to uh, some violence that erupts in a small village in the Amazon. Uh, he goes there meaning well. And um, it's, but um, doesn't always pull it off. Let's say uh, uh, he has certain certainly has some uh, pro- character problems of his own. I mean, so. let's talk. I mean, he pays off um, mm. seeing debts, but yeah, there are strings attached here, and yeah. there are some promises, aren't there? And that's why the book is called. Uh, as it is, you know, the third promise, because there are promises here. Do you want to briefly skirt around this issue here? I do want to skirt around Giving too much that, away? Yeah. I don't want to spoil the book by telling too much. I, I, um, I think if you're interested in uh, going someplace, like I say, where you've never been before, seeing some things that are authentically drawn, this would be a great book, a great Christmas gift, maybe. I would encourage people uh, to get it as a two-volume gift, let's say, for the friends. But oh, two I, volumes. Uh, yeah, yeah, two volumes. Yeah, yeah, wrapped in a ribbon, maybe. Uh, the, um, uh, you, did you want to add something? I wanted to say something about flavor. Go on, you've touched say that it. word twice. And I want to give credit to this beautiful woman here. Um, so it's challenging to draw this book in an authentic way, in a culture that is not my native culture. I'm an American, and... Uh, I know that culture pretty well, but still it's audacious. It's, it's ambitious. So this, um, so the, there are, the reader will find some bits of Portuguese, for example, in, in, in the book, because their native language is Portuguese. And she is a very fluent, or we both speak Portuguese and Spanish, but so she went, you ask about her contribution. She went through and, um, for example, let's give you a quick example. Mick has to learn Portuguese uh, to, to be effective in the village. And to go from English to Portuguese is a very strong, very difficult uphill struggle to learn the language. Uh, Betty and I both went up that hill and um, to learn foreign languages. And so to get that climb right in that character, where he starts out being very, very clumsy with the language and then attaining some... Um, some, you know, ability in the language, some fluency as he goes along. That's really where she helped me um, um, round these characters out and get that those things correctly, yeah. The the real trick is that, of course, they're speaking English all this time. They are. So he has to make mistakes that would be credible for Portuguese, and but his English is messed up. You know what Mm. I'm saying? Yeah. Because no one would know that his Portuguese is messed up. Um, the same way with, with Zed, because he's a backwards guy. He's not super educated. Uh, and his, his Portuguese needs to not sound like equivalent the Queen of England's English. You know what I mean? Right. So we had to make it in English sound a little backwards without sounding like he came from Appalachia. He needs to uh-huh. sound like a Brazilian fisherman, you know? Right. Um, <clears throat> But express himself with that kind of color. But I, th- I real, think you did that very well. Yeah, she did real magic there, John. She, 
with she did real magic with helping with those cultural fine touches in the glossary and uh, the trick always for a writer is is the way people speak because everybody speaks differently you know um are you a are you a, a an ex-soldier a rural real rural guy in the amazon or are you an irish um a missionary or um to get that to get that dialogue that conversational uh, mm-hmm. right according to character you know so yeah that Oh, I do. And especially when we come to the end of the, the Third Promise book, you know, we have seen a dramatic change on Z's character from where he started off writing the Grave Diggers' dreams, you know, a soldier, a sergeant in the military police. And it's like he's had an apparition to become a totally different person towards the end of the Third Promise, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. So, um yeah. Yeah, that is uh, that is his change through the struggle and uh, through actually making a lot of mistakes. And I believe people can change. And I believe one of the ways, uh, maybe more often than not, John, we change uh, because of failure and because of trouble. And um, I don't know, it seems like... Now, see, he had a lot of failures. Yes, he did. He has a lot of failure. And I think, again, there's a universal theme there besides him so desperately wanting a better life for his family and his village and fighting for that. Um, um, I think the other universal theme there is that one that we fail. Sure. We fail. And we're human. And, um, and though, whether you're Irish or English or American or Australian or whatever your language, whatever, wherever you live, I think you'll recognize that struggle. Um, and his dream is good. His dream is good. It is a beautiful his dream. Is good. Noble dream. His dream is good, everybody. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. even, you know, I want to go to, to yourself, Betty. You know, I get the sense that when I've looked at these books that you brought a woman's touch to these books, particularly around some of the female characters. Of course, the one character we've not talked about here is Anna, his wife. Right, right. Did you have an influence here, Betty? Is this you at work here? Is this you, the successful woman, being behind this successful author? Well, I don't know. I, I think with Anna, um, yeah, in little ways with with Anna to um, express how she would feel. She, I mean, her husband is a wife beater and an alcoholic, but she loves him. And she's also tremendously dependent on him. Um, this is a small village. This is her lot in life. Um, there's not really, really a whole lot of escape for her. Um, she's lost. She's had many miscarriages. Um, she's had a hard, hard life. And, and perhaps in a few hints, you know, I'm always his first reader on these things. So I can't mm-hmm. remember exactly. He's, he worked on this for 10 years. So, um, I, I, can't remember exact things with Anna. I know I had some things to say about Mick to make him a little more rounded, not too perfect. And then, um, and also I think just around the the background was encouraging him when the, when the publisher uh, suggested that he cut it in half, he was ready to quit. <laughs> he cut my baby in half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I helped him to see that it could be done. And yeah, did you get support from others, Betty? I'm sorry? Did you get support from other people? Uh, yeah, we did. Well, from uh, Brazilian friends to make sure that we had uh, the, the slang particularly correct and the cultural, any kind of cultural things. We had to change Anna's name 
um, from something else that apparently had a second um, meaning. <laughs> so. Yeah, our original name was Pomba, which means pigeon or dove in Portuguese. But it also means something else. It also means, has it, so you have to be careful, it has a double meaning. That's Absolutely. Nice. Yeah. Um, right. And so our friend, Regina Eberly, a Brazilian, uh, read this book for me and uh, read an early draft, earlier draft. And uh, she's just wonderful. She's um, She caught those kinds of cultural things. Uh, even though we had lived in Amazon, lived in Brazil for uh, probably 12 years, 14 years altogether, we, those things can escape you. Because you're never a native. You're never, you're never quite a native. native. So they're deeply embedded in the language. And so we had help from as She, she put the finishing touches on, didn't she? She, she, fixed, she fixed a few things that had directly to do with Brazilian yes. culture or language and others too. Uh, Lucy Vaughn and, uh, and Claire and so forth. We had others look at it. Too. We also had an Irish group, um, a helpful Irish group read, read the book. To see where I'd missed the nuances, um, some nuances in the way Mick, uh, coming out of the troubles, Mick is as a character. And, uh, actually there's a one word of Gaelic in the book. You may remember. I will actually, leave it there because everybody, if you want to see what that word is, go and read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Betty, I want to come to you are, I believe, the primary responsible for putting the, the character name, the key sections together, as right. well as the Portuguese glossary, you know, the phrases section at the end of each book. Did you enjoy working with Don on these books? And would you agree that the books were inspired by 10 years of laughter, tears, and lessons hard won in the heart of the Brazilian rainforest? Absolutely. I fell in love with Brazil when I was 17 years old, had a Brazilian exchange student in my house. And I just love working with Portuguese. That's what I do now. I'm, a, I'm an interpreter and a translator, Portuguese, English. Mm. And um, I just love making the glossary. I love m making Brazil more reachable by others. I love translating uh, poetry and songs from Portuguese into English so people can get what's there. So yeah, I very much enjoyed um, doing a glossary. I got a bit, a bit, um, <laughs> finicky about it. Um, so I did my very, very best to reflect pronunciation uh, in, uh, in ways that people would understand. You can't really do that in print. There's an um sound that doesn't exist. Can't do it. No, I get that. And, um, but it was, yeah. the book was the result of relationships in Brazil and, and laughing, crying, uh, so forth with the people there. Um, they're beautiful people. Yeah. We made some very close friends, and um, they're so welcoming. They would, uh, when we left the village, they would they would give us handmade gifts, and oh, it's just it's just sweet. Oh, you can't help but think, you know, when you look at the two books together, this is at the heart of Brazil, and this is the love that you two had for Brazil. Now, I believe you want to um, read a little. Um, Caption of the first book in a grave diggers. Do you want to read it very briefly we, for us? We did. We do want to read that. We promise it's not very long. I want to give a little bit of context. Um, sure. Because it encapsulates where the name of the book came from. So uh, in the early part of the book, Zay is uh, in the military police. It's where he learns how to read and write, by the way. Uh, but he is disgraced. Uh, there's a, um, a bank robbery there's some, and he's disgraced. Uh, his um, squad fails to defend the bank. And, uh, so he's disgraced. 
and uh, and getting ready to be uh, actually ushered out of the military when his colonel calls him in and his colonel actually invites him to a party where he feels um, he doesn't understand yet the colonel's ulterior motives, which have to do with the revolution. He's called to the colonel's daughter's birthday party. Daughter's birthday party, and indeed. He's so uh, fish out of water. He is just completely out of his element with these officers and um, other people. And it's there that he um, he meets Esmeralda, which who is the colonel's daughter. And this is where his life changes. Okay, let's go. go. Then, as from a dream, Esmeralda appeared, the birthday girl, imparting a vision of excellence that has haunted me ever since. Though only ten, she was already a perfect flower, blooming with health, intelligence, and charm. She smiled with straight white teeth and showed off her dimples on fine rosy cheeks. She moved around the room in her violet petticoats like a fairy princess, introducing herself with politeness and poise. I tried for half a moment to place her on the island with our barefoot boys and dull-eyed girls and found the stretch too painful. Suddenly, the princess was standing right before me. With a smile, a curtsy, and a single word, she delighted me. Encantada, then moved quickly on, little knowing or caring how much damage she'd done. Later, under the doting eyes of her father, Esmeralda recited a long enchanting poem, He Sees You Please, then moved to the piano and played us a waltz. As the last note sounded and the applause died away, the colonel proudly announced that his daughter was studying algebra and English. I didn't know what algebra was, still don't really, but I do know this, Esmeralda was so wonderfully different from the ragged pot-bellied kids in Jacare that she seemed a different species altogether. So came my first real glimpse of excellence, and with it, a world of discontent and trouble. There you go, everybody. That gives you just a flavor of how well constructed this book these two books really are. Don, Betty, where do you see the market for your books? And more importantly, who would you like to see reading your books? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you like, uh, I think if you love fiction um, and you want to, as I mentioned a couple of times before, if you want to go some to a time and place, very few people... Um, very few people can go into uh, the places we went and where we lived and meet this extraordinary cast of characters. Um, and get to know them. I mean, there are eco-tours and so forth where people are taken to villages that are authentic villages where they see a different tourist every day. But uh, to really understand and really know a culture that you really are not probably going to get a chance to know that reflects a lot about ourselves. Um, when you strip away all the, the cultural norms and so forth that we're quite used to and just get down to the, the human beings, I think this teaches us a lot, not only about Amazonian culture, small river village culture, but about ourselves and um, some of our own foibles. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Um, Don, where can people get your books from? Uh, well, it's on Amazon. It's on my own website, um, at uh, donbestauthor.com. 
It's on the publisher's website. That's uh, brimstonefiction.com. And uh, we're hoping to get it into Barnes and Noble. The, uh, the second book is actually um, just out. It's hot off the press. So we're still uh, in the process of getting it into some of the bookstores, Barnes and Noble. And uh, hope that is not yet, but uh, right now it's on amazon.com. Both the books are uh, on amazon.com and both on my website. Um, Don Best author. I do want to just say an excited word about the trailer and give this lady again. Um, I think uh, you're going to. Uh, oh, put the up trailer, a everybody, is in the written introduction. You can click the link and you can watch it. I right. put it on the written introduction, everybody. It's fantastic. So just to, yeah, just to give this lady again uh, her due credit. Um, so that trailer is uh, full of images, um, photography, excellent photography and video that she took. She's very modest. She's a great photographer. And so she took hundreds, if not thousands of pictures while we were in the Amazon. So that trailer, which is 90 seconds, um, those images are all, most, if not all, her. I love the music to it, Betty. I love the music you put towards it. So, anyway, yeah, so. Don and Betty, thank you so much for coming on the show. Don and Betty, best. Thank everybody. you. Thank you, John. Thank you really much. appreciate it. I'm JT Crowley. Thanks for listening, watching wherever you are in the world. So until next time, stay safe. Mm-hmm.